the Gospel of John, and we're now in chapter 17, page 1070, and in a few minutes we'll read this passage. So this week I uh, took, my wife and I took our kids uh, for their very first time skiing. They uh, had never been skiing before, and it had been 15 years since I skied. You know, I skied a lot when I was a teenager and, and uh, in college age and a little bit after that. And, you know, skiing's changed a lot in 15 years. Uh, the skis have changed. They now have these parabolic skis. I worked so hard to learn how to parallel with those old big, long sticks, and now the new skis are just like butter. I mean, they turn so easily. And uh, prices have changed. Wow. Um, uh, people wear helmets now. That's probably a good change because, you know, uh, you should not go with helmets. I'm surprised, you know, we survived. Um, the other thing I noticed that changed is uh, I, my body's a little different 15 years later than it used to be. It's, you know, I, I, my body still can do the moves, but uh, yeah, like around 11 o'clock, you know, different muscles were talking to me and saying like, what are you doing? Um, we haven't been doing this in a long time. Uh, one thing that hasn't changed, though, for me at least personally, and um, it's a little embarrassing to say this, but I still have anxiety issues about the ski lift. I don't like the ski lift. And I, I don't know why. Uh, it's, it's kind of weird. You'd think that I would have no issues with the ski lift since I'm hurling down the mountain so fast. But for whatever reason, the, the ski lift itself, it, it just uh, it freaks me out. You know, I'm, you're sitting way up in the air on this, this seat, and you're in a plastic pair of pants on a plastic seat with ice and snow in between, and like heavy boots and skis pulling in a downward direction. And for whatever reason, I, it, I just have anxiety about that, and, and I'm not really an anxiety-prone person. And, but for whatever reason, I get on that ski lift, and it, it stresses me out. And I just think, you know, what if I, I do like a big sneeze or something, you know, or just like suddenly spaz out, you know, I mean, you ever just kind of get those thoughts like, what if I just did this, you know, and this is not good, and then I, and I have these kids, now my kids are next to me, and I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, because they will spaz out, they will, you know, try to throw snowballs at each other and go flying off the, the chairlift, so uh, yeah, so I, I found out that that anxiety is, it's still there, pretty good for me, um, fortunately, the good thing on the chairlift, that it, the only good thing is they have the bar that comes down, I love that bar. I love the ski lift bar. It, I, I love that thing. The worst part of the, the ski lift ride is the last 100 feet where you have to raise the bar. And you're exposed for about 100 feet there. And I just think, oh, no, this is when it's going to happen. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going through this every time up the ski lift. And, uh, and of course, knowing me, it then becomes a huge spiritual analogy which I will share with you now. So the ski lift is like the Christian life. Just work with me here. It's like the Christian life. We've been uh, caught up in God's grace. We're in salvation. God is carrying us to eternal life. Uh, but but I, I notice that in my Christian life too, I have certain fears and anxieties. And the big one is, one of the big ones is, how, how do I know I'm going to be able to stay in Christ and not fall away? You know, how do I know I'm not going to do something stupid and go flying off and, and you know, fly away from Christ and fall away from him? I, I mean, you know, you think about it. It's like, haven't we all heard the stories? Maybe you have firsthand knowledge of 
that uh, Christian leader or maybe a pastor or somebody like that who seemed to have a great ministry going for 15 years, 20 years, and then suddenly they seemed to just fall off. And there was some secret life or some big immorality. And then, you know, or maybe, uh, you know, you knew a, a Christian who you just look up to. They were kind of a big brother, big sister in the faith. You always admired their faith. You admired how they walked with the Lord. And then they go through some trial, some difficulty. But rather than, you know, their faith being refined by fire, they just give up and they walk away from it. And, and you know, you think like, whoa, 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 whoa. If, if that guy, if that woman could just seemingly fall off the, the ski lift, like, what about me? I looked up to them. I, I thought they were the ones who were strong. And if they can fall off, how, how do I know I'm going to make it? How do I know I'm going to reach the top of a mountain in, in eternal life? You know, is, is there anything holding me in here? Where is my confidence in all of this? You look at John chapter 17, which is where we are today, and uh, this is a prayer. The entirety of John chapter 17, the whole chapter is a prayer. It is a prayer of Jesus. It is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. Uh, It's one of the more precious prayers of Christ because in this extended prayer of chapter 17, we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus and the mind of Jesus. It's a really unique passage of Scripture as Jesus at the Last Supper there with his disciples is praying. And if you were here last Sunday, uh, for the few of you who braved the snow, we looked at verses 1 to 5. And in verses 1 to 5, Jesus was, he was praying for himself. He was lifting up his own needs. And what was he praying as he prayed to the Father? He was praying, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. And chapters, verses 1 to 5, is this incredible sort of dance of mutual adoration and worship between the members of the Trinity. It's it's rich. It's almost too sublime to preach about. And uh, if you want to hear my attempt at making sense of it, that's online. You can listen to it on the website. But but he now shifts in verse 6. There's a pivot in the prayer, and he goes from praying for himself and his own glory, and then in verses 6 to 19, he now begins to pray for those disciples there, and and in, in praying for the disciples, he then is essentially praying for eventually all disciples, all who will follow him. And as he's praying there, hours before his crucifixion, what does he pray for these disciples? We're gonna see he prays that they wouldn't fall. He prays that God would keep them in, in the chair. Let me read verses 6 to 19, and then we'll tear, uh, pull it apart a little bit. It says in verse 6, this is part of Jesus' prayer, I have revealed you, Jesus is praying to the Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. And now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. It's a rich prayer. I feel there's so much theologically packed in this that we could spend weeks just pulling apart and, and savoring all the riches that are in this prayer. But instead of that, I'll just kind of move us through it this morning. And, and as a way of kind of analyzing this prayer, we're just going to ask three of the classic journalist questions. You know, all the questions journalists ask, who, what, where, when, why, and how. And I want to ask three of those questions of this passage, and, and hopefully that'll help us kind of make sense of this really rich, theologically complex prayer and, and help us to, to, to understand it and, and sort of offer a kind of movement through it. Uh, and so the three questions I want to ask are who, what, and why. Who, what, and why. There's a who and a what and a why in this, uh, this prayer. And, and, this, and the prayer follows that pattern. It addresses a who and then a what and then a why. So here's the who, and it starts with uh, who is Jesus praying for? Uh, or for whom is Jesus praying? Jesus is lifting up prayers for somebody. He's offering prayers. And who is it for here? And the answer is he's, he's praying for his true disciples. You know, look at verse 6. He says, I've revealed you, saying to God, I've revealed you, Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. And again, you get this language in verse 9. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus is not praying for the whole world. He's not praying for everybody, but he's praying for a certain group that, this is the language, the Father has given to the Son out of the world. That language appears back in verse 2, where he says, this is what we studied last Sunday, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. So there's this idea that you have the whole world, you have all people. And when John uses the word world, we've learned from our study of John, he doesn't just mean the entire population of planet earth. The word world is kind of a a theologically loaded phrase in John. It has a negative theological connotation. It means the the mass of humanity, the world, in its rejection of God. It's, it's humanity in its spiritual orientation away from God that says to God, no, thank you. We'll do it our way. We'll create our own spirituality. We'll create our own morality. We'll decide for ourselves what is true. In fact, we're not even sure if you exist. And, and we're going to live our life our way on our terms and and we're fine, thank you. Unless we get into a real bind, we might shoot up a prayer. But otherwise, we're fine. And, and Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, I don't think so. So, so it's, it's that posture of unbelief and rebellion against God. That's what John means by the word world. 
And so when he's, whenever you see that word world in John, you, you kind of hear that negative background behind it. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for a group of people who've been chosen out of the world that the Father has given to the Son, and the Son is now going to save and bring up the mountain, to go back to our metaphor. We've seen this idea throughout John. Um, If you've been studying John with us, it just keeps coming up again and again and again, this idea of God's choosing and saving. Uh, For instance, go back to John chapter 6. Here's a few for instances of many we could look at. But do you remember this? John chapter 6, verse 39. When Jesus was telling the crowds he was the bread of life. John 6, 39. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me. This is what God intends to do. That I shall lose none of all he has given me. So there's that idea. The Father has given some to the Son. And the son says, I'm not going to lose them, but I will what? Raise them up at the last day. They're going to make it to the top of the mountain. I'm going to raise them. I'm going to save them. Or look at John chapter 10. The language shifts now. The language is no longer the father giving to the son. Instead, the language is now shepherd and sheep language. But it's the same idea. John chapter 10, verse 14. Now Jesus moves from being the bread of life to the good shepherd. And he says in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep knows me, know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And so here again is this idea that that out of the mass of the world in its rebellion against God, God has graciously called a flock. He has, the Father has graciously chosen some who is giving to the Son, and the Son is going to save them. Uh, this idea appears elsewhere in the New Testament. Elsewhere in the New Testament, sometimes it's, it's referred to as predestination or election or God's choosing. Uh, Jesus, John doesn't use that language, but the idea is clearly here. God has chosen some, and that's for whom Jesus is praying. Now, I know we get into start talking about predestination and all of our heads explode, <laughs> including mine, because <laughs> I don't fully understand it. <laughs> it's a very difficult doctrine to understand completely. Anytime anyone's like, hey, I got it all figured out, I'm like, uh-oh. No, you don't. <laughs> it's very difficult. You know, we're talking about the, the secret things of God and how God works, um, but, but, you know, you can easily kind of get lost in a philosophical labyrinth when you start thinking about these, these great things of God, how God works in the world. Um, but, but God is sovereign, and, and he's chosen to save some. Let me just make two observations, and then we'll move on to the what. But just two observations that might not answer all of our questions about God's saving of people and how he chooses and determines and deliberates, but might at least give us a few handles that help us a little bit. And one of those observations is this. Observation number one that can help us with the who, is that those whom the Father has given have come out of the world. Look again at verse 6. I'm now back in chapter 17, back to our main text. Chapter 17, verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. So whoever God is saving, this is key, they're coming out of the world. They're, they're, They're part of the mass of insurgent, rebellious defiant humanity of which we are all naturally a part. 
God is saving out of that. So, so in other words, you know, sometimes people say, well, it doesn't seem fair that God should save some people and not other people. And, and the answer is, yeah, that's not fair. Fair would be if he didn't save anybody because <laughs> it's out of the world. You know, if God just looked at the world and said, no, I'm going to judge the whole thing, that would actually be very fair. That would be getting what our works deserve. The fact that God even saves one person is like, wow. He saved one person. They didn't deserve to be saved. But he, he actually reached into the, the, the cesspool of the world and saved one through his son. And then we learn he didn't just save one. He saved a whole people. And you think, wow, amazing grace that God would save any. So just remember as we wrestle with this that God is saving out of an unbelieving, hostile world. For God so loved the world is an amazing statement of this, the magnitude of God's love. Here's the second observation, though. And, and this is so important as you're trying to puzzle this out philosophically. You know, some days you just get your cup of coffee and you're like, hey, I'm going to figure this out today. You know, well, here's something you've got to keep in mind. It's that those who have been given by the Father to the Son, those that, that whom God have chosen, are the same ones who, in fact, actually believe in the gospel. All right, so check it out. Verse 6. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they what? They obeyed your word. Verse 8. I gave them the words you gave me. I, gave, I came to this group you've given me. I've given them your words. And they what? Accepted them. They knew for certainty I came from you. They believed that you sent me. So we still have to believe the gospel. We still have to obey Jesus' words. You know, the the way we're saved is by believing Jesus' words, not by sitting around going, I wonder if I'm chosen or not. There's only one way to know. Believe the gospel. That's the command. You know, because I I think sometimes you get into this whole predestination thing and it gets so complex. and, And you can say, well, you know, uh, I, I mean, why, why, do I, why do I even try? What does it even matter? God's just done what he's going to do, and so it doesn't matter what I believe. Yes, it does. You've got to believe the gospel. You know, sometimes people uh, can become very passive, and they can say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how I live. God saved me. God's forgiven me. So, you know, if, if I want to go on with an affair, if I want to, you know, party on Saturday night and go to youth group on Sunday night, You know, if I want to divorce my spouse, if I want to live my own life the way I want to live it, you know, it doesn't matter because God's a God of love. He'll forgive me. No, 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 no. Look it. The ones who belong to Him are the ones who, verse 6, obey His Word. And so we can't presume upon God. We still have to obey and believe His Word. Or maybe some of you hear about predestination. You think, what's the point? What if He didn't choose me? You know, look. Believe. <laughs> Just believe in Christ. You're like, well, I want to believe in Christ. I, I think I do, but what if I'm not chosen? Just believe. You know, turn to Christ, repent of your sins, and believe. You know, why are you here this morning? Why, why is the desire even in you to want to believe in Christ? Could it be because he's at work inside of you? So stop trying to overthink it and just believe. Receive the message. We have no clue whom God has chosen to do what. All we know is that we've been presented with Jesus and we have to choose to receive him. And so that's who Jesus is praying for. He's 
putting out a special prayer for those whom the Father has given him. We don't know who they are, but he does. And that leads to the second question here. What is Jesus praying for this group? Now that we've identified the group who are receiving the prayer, it's all those whom the Father has given who reveal themselves, who evidence their identity by receiving the gospel. What does he pray? And the answer is, in short, he prays that God would lower the safety bar and hold them in tight so that they don't fall away. Look at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Here's the prayer. Here's what he's praying. Holy Father, protect them. Protect them. Hold them in. There's something a little bit lost in translation here, I think, in this translation. The, uh, the, the Greek word that's translated protect them here, and that's a fine translation, I suppose, but it could also be translated keep them. So it's like, don't lose them, keep them. You know, you give something to a little kid, don't lose it, hold on to that, keep it, right? And I like that translation better uh, because if you go back to verse six, this is kind of cool, this is what's lost in translation, but look back at verse six, it says, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have, you see where it says, obeyed your word? That's actually the same word for keep. So I think there's a really kind of cool parallelism going on here, where it's like, Father, they've kept your word, now you keep them. Right? Keep the keepers. There's some who've responded to the gospel and said, yes, I want Christ. Yes, I want his word. And Jesus is saying, those who are my true people who are responding that way, you know, they've said, yes, I'll keep the gospel. And what I want you to do, Father, is put your arms around them and keep them. So as they keep your word, you keep them. Keep those who keep your word. That's the prayer. Protect them, keep them, hold on to them. Because up to this point, Jesus has been the one protecting them, right? He's been the one riding the chairlift with them the whole time. Verse 11, I'll remain with them no longer. They're still in the world. I'm leaving the world. I'm about to leave. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them. I protected them. And I guarded them or kept them safe by the name that you give me. None of them was lost except the one doomed to destruction. Jesus says, my sheep, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. No one can pluck them out of my hand. I've kept them safe, Father. But now I'm not going to be here anymore. So for the last three years, the disciples have been on the chairlift, and Jesus has been there with them. It's like a big turbo 12, 13-person chairlift, if you can imagine this. And Jesus is the one who's been keeping them on the chairlift. You know, like, remember the old days when, when we didn't used to wear seatbelts in cars? And, uh, you know, the good old days before helmets and seatbelts and everything that we do today to protect ourselves. And, you know, the, and your parents would stop and they'd go like this with their arm, you know. So safe. And, uh, you know, they'd, whoa, like that. Uh, and, you know, and it's all, I can just imagine Jesus. He's got him on the chairlift. He's, he's, and for the last three and a half years, he's been holding them in. He's been protecting them. He's been keeping them. If, if he were to just let those disciples go, they'd, like, freak out and do something stupid. He's held them on the chairlift. But now he's like, Father, I'm getting off. I'm coming to you. And so you're going to have to lower the bar and hold these disciples in. You've got to protect them because I'm not going to be here anymore. So, Father, keep them. Don't let them fall away. And keep them for what? Well, for eternal life. Help them not lose their faith. Keep them holding on to the gospel. 
Make sure they cross the finish line. Make sure they reach the top of the mountain. You know, I, I, Jesus says, I want to give them eternal life. They're going to finish the course of faithfulness in this life and not turn away. They're not going to be, if you want to use the negative example in verse 12, they're not, keep them so they don't, don't act like Judas. Judas fell away. And Jesus says he wasn't one of the ones I was keeping, right? You know, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Think about Judas and Peter. Two disciples, both of them betrayed Jesus, right? They both blow it big time. Both of them stab Jesus in the back. Peter and Judas both deny him, and yet Judas is lost, and Peter is brought back. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? I'll tell you what it is. Peter was kept, and Judas was not kept. It was the power of God. It was Jesus coming after Peter and and pulling him back and finding Peter and, and drawing him back. It's the keeping power of God. Because both of those guys were like throwing themselves off the chairlift. And Jesus saved Peter. It's that keeping power of God. You know, it's, it's, it, just to use another analogy that, that uh, God kind of showed me the other day. I was out walking my dog. I have a terrier, or as we call her, the terrierist. And uh, her name is Princess Leia. And uh, she's, we, I was out walking her. And, and you know, uh, we, she's been trying to learn for years now how to walk next to you and not get ahead. But, you know, with terriers, the thing about them is if they, like, see a squirrel or they hear a dog bark, or the wind blows in Malaysia, you know, they'll just, whatever, they'll just suddenly like, you know, like, you know, launch off, and who knows what they sent. They think they sent something, and they take off after it. So, you know, she's walking with me on this leash, and then something, whatever will happen, and suddenly it'll be like, you know, and so you got to pull her back, and like, and she's like, you know, and, and you're like, okay, then she's walking next to you, and she's happy again, and then she's shooting off again, and I don't know when it was, just like a couple weeks ago, I was walking her like that, and, and I felt like the Lord said to me, that's kind of like our relationship, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming, you're, yeah, I'm the dog, and you're the master. And, you know, it's like, when I'm walking with the Lord, when I'm walking with the Lord, it's great. It's freedom, it's joyful, I'm next to him. But then I just like, I get those you know, my sinful impulses, whatever, and I just go bolting off. And, and I would run off, and I would get run over by a car, except God, <clears throat> you know, pulls me back. Sometimes it hurts, but he, he keeps pulling you back. I mean, haven't you, if, if, if you're a Christian, haven't you had this experience in your life of times in your Christian life where your faith has been in a low ebb, where you've wandered down old paths of sin, you, you've kind of gone back to the old ways that you gave up, you thought, you thought you were done with that and you find yourself back into the old habits and, and you're a Christian and you start drifting away and you think, oh, I'm done, forget about it and something happens and it's like God <clears throat> pulls you back in and you're like, I just can't get away from this guy. <laughs> he's keeping you, he's, he's holding you despite your natural and my natural Peter-like tendencies. It is God's restraining grace that just keeps pulling you back in. And Because God says, you're mine. The Savior died for you. You belong to me. I'm not going to lose what I've purchased. 
Christ doesn't lose anything. He, he says he will lose none. He's not going to get there on the last day and count his sheep and say, whoa, uh, well, I only got you know, 95%. But that's pretty good, don't you think, Father? 95 out of this you know, bunch. He's not going to miss anybody. Everyone that the Father's given will come to him. Everyone the Father gave, Christ died for. Everyone that Christ died for, Christ keeps his hands on and he holds them and he's going to get them across the finish line. And so he's praying here, Father, keep them, keep them. Don't let them fly off. And boy, do we need that. We got so much stuff trying to pull us off the chairlift. You know? Verse 14, we have the world. That world we left, we're still in it. And it's still pulling, a down, pulling down on us. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. You know, those of you who came to faith in Jesus as an adult, you know that. You know, sometimes as a kid, you don't really realize how you used to be in the world, but you're out of it because you're sort of protected from that. But some of you who came to faith in Jesus as adults, you know you were in the world and then you were out of the world and what a difference. And sometimes the people who are still in the world are still looking at you funny saying like, where'd you go? What got into you? Who do you think you are? We know who you are. You used to do all the same stuff, and now you think you're all, you know, church-going Jesus guy. Who do you think you are? Get back down here. You know, this is where you belong. You got all high and mighty on us. And, and, and that, that, that pressure to go back, that pressure to, to be in the old life is so strong, and that resistance from the world, even relationships that you still have, and, and you can sort of feel them pulling down on you. Man, that's a lot of pressure. I need the keeping power of God to keep me close to Him. And not only is it the world and my relationships, but it's my own heart. You know, Satan is still tempting me. Again, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. God, I'm not saying beam them up now. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. They're going to stay in the world, but they need to be kept you know, and, and this, Satan is, is working on him. It, you know, I just imagine Satan on the, on the chairlift just hanging on your boot. You know, boing, 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 and like, ah, pulling on you. And, and, he, and he knows all of our buttons. He knows you better than to you know yourself. Satan is very real, and, and he tempts, and he throws temptations at us. And, you, you know, just as scientists are mapping the human genome, Satan has mapped your spiritual genome long ago. He knows what your temptations are. He knows where your weak points are. He knows what mine are. For some of us, it's substances. Others of us, it's shopping. Others of us, it's uh, relationships. Some of us, it's money or success or pride or um, you know, intellectualism. But whatever, we, we all have these temptations, and he just grabs onto that and just pulls on it, trying to yank us off. And so we need this keeping power of God to hold us in, to be protected from the evil one. He's, he just weighs too much. He'd pull us right off. And so it's God's keeping power, even as we keep the truth. Again, this isn't some kind of passive Jesus will just take care of me kind of theology. We've got to hold on to the truth. We've got to hold on to his word. We've got to keep seeking the Lord. But I need to know that as I'm doing that, that ultimately God's arms are around me and he's holding me and keeping me because Jesus has prayed for it. 
that the Father is going to give to the Son what the Son asks. And the Son asks that I wouldn't be pulled off. (sighs) Okay, maybe I can do this. If God's going to hold on to me, maybe I can walk this Christian walk by his grace and his strength. Because he's not taking me out of the world. Which then raises the last question, why? Why exactly is he not taking me out of the world? Why is he keeping me in the world and he's keeping me close to him, but he's, like he says here, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. And sometimes I think, why isn't that your prayer? That would be awesome. (laughs) You believe in Jesus? Beam me up, Scotty. And you're gone. See people, oh, he must have become a Christian. Boop, he's gone. Hmm, maybe I should become a Christian. Hey, God, that'd be a great evangelistic tool. People who believe in him just start disappearing. Boop, boop, boop. Wouldn't that be great? Why doesn't he do that? Why am I still here? So the who is those whom the Father has given to the Son who reveal themselves by their response to the gospel and they're holding on to the gospel. The what of the prayer is that God would take those, that group who've kept the gospel and he would keep them. And the why, why is he keeping us in the world and why did he not take us out with him? And the answer to the why is in verses 17 to 19. It's because he has a mission for us in the world. He has work for us to do in the world. That's why we're still here. It's because he has a job. Verses 17 to 19. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Here we go. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus is sending those 11 disciples into the world. And what is their mission? Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus' mission was to come and be the Lamb of God, to die for our sins and rise again. And the apostles, and through the apostles now us, are now being sent into the world to proclaim that message that, that we can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that you can be forgiven, not by your own efforts, not by trying to hike up the mountain yourself by being a better person or being spiritual or whatever, baloney. It, it's only by letting Christ carry you by his grace. It's, we're saved by faith, not by works, not by religion, not by our own spirituality or morality. And so that's the message we bring to the world. That's our job is to tell people that in the world. God has a purpose and a plan for us in that. That's why we're still here, even though it stinks sometimes. That's why we're still here. It's because God wants to use us. Uh, you, you know, to, to kind of totally destroy my whole analogy here, not only are we being carried up the mountain, but we're also, at the same time, the ski patrol that's going down the mountain to bring the gospel to other people. I know that just doesn't work, does it? But you're postmodern. What do you care? I mean, it's just, you know, contradictions, whatever. So, so we're, you know, if, if you can sort of blend those two together, to be a Christian means to be carried up by God's grace uh, up toward the top, but also at the same time to be used by God down in the world uh, and, and to be that, you know, that the ski patrol guy with the big eh, cross, hmm, cool, that's working. Uh, you know, the, the ski patrol guy who's going down looking for the wrecked people who are open to God's grace to bring them the gospel, to bring them the message of Jesus. 
as we're on that search. That's what the whole sanctification language is about, verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified, to be holy, means to be set apart. So in the Old Testament, there were certain things that were set apart. The temple was holy. It was set apart for God's use. The sacrificial animals were set apart for God's use. The priests were set apart for God's use so they could go back and minister to the people. And so we are sanctified, again, by the word of God, holding on to his word. We are set apart to then go back into the world. So so do you see this? It's this tension. We're set apart. We're up, again, on the chair left. We're separate from the world. We're distinct. But we're set apart to serve the world. So our being not in the world doesn't mean that we retreat into kind of a Christian bubble, a a, a Christian commune. We we all go on the Christian cruise ship and sail around the world detached from the world. No, no, no. We're, We're engaging the world, but we're doing it as people who are separate apart from the world. And somehow you've got to hold on to both of those. Set apart, distinct, living by God's word, not following our old ways, and yet very much loving people and rubbing shoulders with people and being in the world because we're the, also the ski patrol that God's called us to be, uh, to bring the gospel to others, just as a ski patrol person came and found us. So th- that's, that's this tension that we have to, to hold on to. Because what the world needs is distinct Christians. I think sometimes we think if we're going to really reach the world, we've got to get cooler, hipper, more like the world. You know, if we want people to come to church, church has got to get hipper, cooler, trendier, sexier. And, and if, if we can make church look more like what people are used to seeing in the world, maybe they'll want to be in the church. And, and I guess I think it's just the opposite. I think what people want to see is something different. They, they want to see real Christianity, if they're going to believe it, which should look very different from the world. So, so we're separate from the world, but we're engaged with the world. We need to bring our Christian distinctiveness and the things Jesus is doing in our lives, and we've got to bring that right back to the places from which we were saved so that people can see that it's legitimate, that it's a real deal. It's not just Sunday morning hypocrisy or Sunday morning religion. We, uh, uh, on a ski trip, we um, were having dinner one night, and uh, you know, like a lot of Christians, we, we pray at dinner time. It's, you know, dinner's a great time to pray as a family or with, if you're there with your friends or even by yourself because you know, you're getting basic sustenance. It's a good reminder that, wow, God gives me everything I need. And so sometimes we give thanks at our meals because it's a way of saying, thank you, God, that you give us everything that we need. And just give him thanks and remind us of our dependence upon him. Anyway, but you know, it's always weird when you pray together as a group when you're out in public. There's that whole restaurant thing where they take your order, they bring your food. You're like, okay, we're going to pray. Actually, is, is she getting the ketchup? Oh, maybe we should wait for the ketchup. Is she coming back? Should we pray quick? Oh, here she comes. Oh, she's not coming. You know, and you do that weird... Are we the only one who does this? Okay, so anyway. So, so our family was starting to do that, and I loved it. My, and at some point in that, uh, we were in this little restaurant, and my, my oldest son, he just said, he goes, why don't we just pray? What are we ashamed of? I was like, yeah. What are we ashamed of? That's why we just prayed. Who cares, you know, if they come bringing the ketchup? But I mean, that's a stupid little small ex- example of the kinds of ways we hold back. But, but you know, what, what, what are we afraid of? We're distinct. Who are we trying to impress in the world? Why are we trying to get the world to like us? I mean, we, we belong to Christ. So we just need to be who we are, be bold, be confident, and then 
engage the world and let the chips fall where they may. And I think we, as, especially as New Englanders, we've just been in, trained, right? What have we been trained? You keep your faith to yourself. You keep your thoughts to yourself. You keep your prayers to yourself. And you go out in the world and you talk about the weather. <laughs> but you keep your beliefs to yourself. And, and that's just one of those elements where, where I think the way we've been trained culturally is so different than the kingdom of God. That God has called us to be bold and to be, uh, to be out there. Pastor Godwin has laid down the gauntlet for us. He, he's challenged us. Some of you saw this email. He's challenged us to uh, start praying now before Easter about who we might invite to come to Easter services. You know, that's, that's again that boldness. Lay down the gauntlet. I need to start praying for somebody that I want to share the gospel with and maybe invite them to an Easter service where they can hear the gospel. You know, who will that one person be? We have to stop letting the world dictate the terms of our Christianity. We have to be willing to just be who we are in Christ and love people and come alongside those that God puts in our path with love and with the truth of the gospel. God has set us apart for that mission. And it is ultimately Jesus' own mission that makes that mission possible. Verse 19, I'll just close with this. He says, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus is setting himself apart for mission. He's sanctifying himself so that we can be sanctified for mission. And how did he do it? He went to the cross. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that makes all of this possible. The reason I can have hope that God is going to keep me is because Jesus died for me. The reason I can have hope that God could possibly use someone like me in the world is because Christ died for me. It's because he sanctified himself and didn't fail his mission that we can be confident and can be set out. Jesus died for me. He rose for me. He ascended to heaven for me. He's in heaven at the Father's right hand right now for us. And what is Jesus doing right now according to the Scriptures? He's praying for us. He hasn't stopped praying for us. The Scriptures say that the Son is interceding for us. And so right now, I'm continuing to be kept And you and I are continuing to be kept because Jesus has not stopped praying for us. And he's continuing to pray. And he will pray and hold on to us until he comes again. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're a finder keeper kind of God that you found us and you're going to keep what you find. Lord, we know that if it was up to us to stay found, we, we would get lost all over again. Thank you, Lord, that even when we make our best efforts to get lost, you just keep reaching your hand down and you keep finding us. And after a while, we start getting the point that your grace is greater than our sin. And so, Lord, I just pray that if there are any Christians here who are wandering, straying, questioning, doubting, falling back into sin, that you would extend your hand into their life and grab them even by the scruff of the neck if necessary and just bring them back to you. Lord, pick them up. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is seeking you, who wants to know the truth, that they would 
they would just open their heart to you, Jesus. Maybe you're already speaking to their hearts and they're trying to hold you off. And I thank you, God, that's always a losing battle, that you gather and you save those whom you intend to save. And so thank you, Lord, for the wrestling souls that are here, those who are raising questions. God, I pray that you would grab them and pull them in with your loving grip. And Lord, I pray for all of us uh, who are believers that you would use us on this mission that you would put that ski patrol cross on our chests and we would be those who go into the world to, to love and to humbly tell the message of the gospel to others, Lord. There's so much need around us. Open our eyes. Help us to be used by you, we pray. And we ask all this through Jesus who died and rose and is praying for us now. We ask this in his name. Amen.